G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Deet. Today is the 19th of September and our topics this week is why isn't there dental in Medicare? And the results are in and we've got a list of the most and least ethical Australian jobs as voted on by the public. Maybe one of you were part of the survey. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Of course, we have our Two Ticks Town Talk. Then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deed and finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up with the last week. Adit, what's been going on with you? Had a, had a win with uh, my wife's Apple trackpad. Uh, she bought that in the, the keyboard and it was a, whatever you call it, magic trackpad or something or other. Hadn't used it for a while and she decided to set up her office a little bit differently and, and uh, bring it out of the box. Thing was dead, went through all the, uh, the usual stuff of uh, online and trying it and say, no, definitely dead. Took it into Apple. We'd had it for a, a few years and um, basically got it replaced free of charge. They said, well, bring it in. This oh, is what sh- you get charged. He showed me the receipt and he said, you'll be charged zero. Um, I was pretty pleased with it. He said they had had some issue with them where the battery uh, leaked something and it, it fused itself and turned itself off. So I, I'm speculating that maybe... That's a device that they said, listen, if someone has an issue, just just give them a new one. But whatever it was, that was a, um, yeah, that was a win. I was pretty pleased with uh, with that. Good to get a, a nice cuss service uh, experience. And I've been getting my Hugel culture ready for my tomatoes. I don't know if I mentioned my Hugel culture mound before to you. No. Please indulge me. What what is this? It was something that my ear because it was just such an unusual sounding thing. But essentially, I think it's I think it might have Dutch um, origins. So H U G E L. Essentially, what you do is uh, build a pile of wood and cover it or round of wood, then cover it with, uh, oh, yes. with dirt, yes. poke it into the I have heard about this. Yes. yes. And as it starts to break down over the years, it uh, provides you know, sort of organic matter and food. So I built mine, well, I built two of them that look a little, <laughs> they look a little bit like um, slightly larger shallow graves in the uh, yard, but I'll <laughs> <laughs> grow over the, the years as I had more dirt and stuff on top. Uh so I built one a couple of, of years ago. Hadn't sort of used it that much and had that much luck with it, but they sort of I got a bit more dirt on it, put it on top, and so this year I think oh, I'll give the tomatoes a go in in there. So I've just got to set up the finish setting up the automatic uh, watering system onto it. It's I've moved it all over to a bed next door, so I'll just uh, scoot it back onto there because yeah. Have, you ha- yeah, how you have to move the oh, well, you may not know you have to move your tomatoes around ideally from bed to bed each year because if you have the if you keep growing um, tomatoes, I can't remember the family that they're from. I should bloody hell, I should know that. But those um, that family of uh, particular plants, 
if you keep growing them in the same bed, there's little things, I think they're called nematodes or something like that, that uh, start to affect the growth of the tomatoes uh, the, the next year and the year after that. So the solution is don't plant them in the same bed every year. Spread them around and you should get tomatoes. So hopefully... Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully that's uh, nightshade is the word ah, I'm yes, thinking yes. of. To this. That's not the technical name, but nightshade, those and potatoes and, and stuff. So hopefully I got the there's bloke down the road who helps me with some uh, gardening stuff uh, and he's getting some tomato seedlings happening. He likes, one of those people likes to sort of grow stuff and give them out and I'll grab a few from Diggers Club. So that's been my week. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I've you? um, I, I didn't know that. I, I do know they um, it's very common to use that technique with like raised garden beds, just for the fact that you don't want to spend a fortune filling a raised garden bed with um, you know, with with <laughs> premium soil. Yeah. Um, depending on how big it is, of course, it can become very expensive. So it is very common that you put some some reasonably big logs at the bottom, and then sort of some smaller stuff on top, and then and then sort of you know top top sort of half of it up with soil, and then as as it all gets going, it all sort of breaks it down and stuff like that. So um, I've never done that myself. I only have one raised garden bed, and it's just got a couple of lily pillies in it, and they seem to be going all right. Though they yeah. probably could use a bit more soil, if I'm honest. Um, so I might have to top that up. But I've been helping a, a good mate of mine. I uh, chopped down a couple of trees this last week. Uh, in the last couple of days, had some guys come in and cut them down, and the bloke said it'll cost you eight hundred dollars for the wood chipper to come in, chip up the trees, and take them away. And just, he said, just for the chipper, just for the removal of the trees uh, to chip them all up. And I, and How he said, I think there was four. They were wow. reasonably big trees. Okay. Um, but I thought that was pretty, pretty steep considering that was about the cost of the tree lopping anyway. Uh, and so my mate said, nah. Uh, and he gave me a call and said, hey, do you want some free firewood? And I said, sweet. So I went around there, got some firewood. It did come with the condition that I needed to help him uh, take the rest of it to the tip. So we did a couple of runs. We've got a couple more to do, but we sort of broke its back today uh, between a couple of us getting stuck in. Um, so, so the old, the arms and the back are a bit sore at the moment, oh. if I'm honest. Huh. Um you know, it's it's all well and good. You're very enthusiastic when the start of the day, but as you, as it sort of wears on, you just keep moving these big heavy logs. And, That's a lot of wood know, to move. I'm not, yeah, and I'm not as I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, oh. Definitely, definitely starts to to hurt. Uh, speaking of things hurting, though, Medicare. Why isn't dental included in Medicare? I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that are really curious as to what the hell has happened here because, of course, in Australia, we have universal health care for hospital, GP, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but dental, well, let's get into it. So for years, oral health has really highlighted the growing inequalities in Australia between the rich and the poor. 
While your visit to local GP is either partially or entirely covered by Medicare, only a fraction of the population can access government-funded dental checkups. It's not because oral health isn't important. In fact, it's closely associated with a wide range of conditions, including diabetes and heart disease. But unlike most things in politics... This all comes down to money, and a decision was made almost five decades ago. It all started with the Whitlam government originally wanting to include dental in Medibank in 1974. Medibank, of course, is what the precursor to Medicare was called. But negotiations with doctors consumed all the government's efforts, and the Whitlam didn't want to bite off more than he could chew with the dentists and the dentistry lobby as well. Oh. And it was going to be co- it was going to be costly. So basically, the Whitlam government just pushed it through. They took the win that they had and forgot about the dental. Since then. We've seen various governments try to reform the dental system, but despite the efforts of those who are in power, a huge gap in the care remains. The rules vary depending on where you live, what state you live in, but typically children and adults on concession cards, we're talking like healthcare cards, are eligible for free basic services like checkups and fillings. The states and territories run and fund these dental clinics with help from the federal government. The Australian Dental Association estimates about 8 million of us are actually eligible for these clinics, but significantly less than that use them each year. Partially because the waiting lists for treatments in some areas are more than two years long. Oh, wow. That's a long time to wait if you have a toothache. Um As a result, many people are struggling to get timely care that they need and wind up needing emergency care later on. With more than 800,000 GP consultations and hospital visits each year just for dental conditions. That's crazy. So, what can be done? What are we doing? So far... The Greens is the only party with the representatives in Parliament promising universal access to free dental care. Of course they are. Western Australia Greens Senator Jordan Steele-John is chairing a multi-party Senate inquiry into access to dental care in Australia, which is due to wind down its final report by the end of the year. Senator Steele-John says bringing dental treatment into Medicare would be transformational. He says... What we have in Australia is a system in decay. I don't know if that pun was intended, but I'm going to assume it was. (laughs) Little diesel, little bunch. He says, "A a dental health system that does not work for the community. He says, if you're lucky enough to be a very wealthy person, you can get dental care reasonably quickly. For everybody else, they're stuck waiting on either a public system year after year, finding some way to go further into debt or to withdraw their superannuation. Or they're just going to go without it, leading to some horrendous health outcomes and mental health outcomes for people. In the 103-page interim report, of the Senate inquiry handed down in June says that the government's spending on dental care in Australia is low by international standards and that in 2019, only eight out of the 38 uh, Organisation for Economic 
co-cooperation and development countries reported a lower share than Australia. So that's not good. Being 30th out of 38 is not great. A federal Department of Health and Aged Care spokesman says the Senate committee's recommendations would be considered in the context of the long-term, long-term dental funding reform once they are handed down. But the spokesman says the Albanese government acknowledges that there are barriers to accessing affordable oral health care and is committed to a long-term goal of expanding Medicare to dental services. The Australian Dental Association doesn't think any government would swallow the price tag for universal dental care. So maybe Whitlam was onto something. Calling instead on the federal government to expand the Dental Benefits Act to provide more public oral health care for vulnerable groups such as people with disabilities. Melbourne-based ADA federal president Stephen Liu says... By targeting those socioeconomic demographics that need it the most, like those in aged care, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and those with low incomes, we could assist in turning around the burden of Australia's oral disease. So that doesn't leave us with much. No. I'm really curious as to how much all of this would cost. Like... As I said before, many things in politics, money is probably the biggest hurdle to the universal dental scheme. Overall, about $9.5 billion was spent on dental services in 2019 and 2020, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. The bulk of that was paid of -of out-of-pocket costs. In 2019, the Grattan Institute estimated the cost of fully operational universal scheme would cost about $6.5 billion a year, which argues uh, it would operate much like Medicare does with the federal government setting a fee schedule and paying public dental services and private practices for the services provided, just like it currently does with uh, bulk billing GPs and stuff, which we've spoken about before. Um, so, I mean, having a fully funded public dental system would be expensive, but we already know there's already a massive public cost to not having one. I think this is one of those weird situations where the prevention is significantly less than the cure. So if we can nip this in the bud earlier, it's actually going to save us money that we're already spending. Yeah, what do I you think? think? That's a good, I think that's a good argument. Look, you know, regular listeners are not going to be surprised that, on principle, I don't think even Medicare should be um, funded just as a principle. However, that's the situation we've got, and that's the way that people have decided they want to go. It's always that dental, basic dental, is not covered by Medicare. You know, I could be wrong here, but Medicare doesn't cover everything or even give you access to everything, but it does cover a lot of the, the basics. And probably, despite my um, personal philosophies, if this came up to a choice for me, I would say that basic dental should be covered by Medicare because it's such a precursor to diseases to uh well you listed you listed the few things it's a precursor to diseases it's a precursor to mental health problems because look you know your smile um your teeth 
actually uh, a part of your your self image and part of what you project and part of how you react to people. You know, I mean, the the there is a innate, um, or sorry, an instinctual element of us as humanity that we judge the health of people from their appearance, which which is you know makes sense given the our animal background. And if you see someone with uh, bad teeth or a mouthful of not particularly good teeth, you do associate that with um, you know a, a negative aspect or um, judge it to be low health, and it does impact on how you interact with that person. So you know that has a, that has a feedback loop there. And as I understand it, aside from what you you listed, it's just such a an um. I don't know what is it. It's it's sort of an entry point for so many diseases, so many bacterial problems. Can start with the. Well, I had a uh, a mate of mine, and this is anecdotal, obviously. So an anecdote doesn't prove anything. However, anecdotally, his um, bacterial infection that got into his brain and heart and, and nearly killed him. I mean, he was in ICU for. Bloody hell! Something like three months or 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 more, um, and it was due to some uh, problems, some dental problems, where that had been the entry point for the bacteria. And when you see the the skull sort of sliced the uh, different canals and how everything's connected, and realise that in many instances there's a direct path uh, between parts of the mouth to to the membranes around the brain, it's no surprise that uh, dental health, bad dental health can cause very severe problems. So, look, I would have to come down on the side of it. It's probably no surprise that we see the, the greens are in there. And whilst I sort of, I don't know, I thought you had a little bit of sort of, also greens are in there. This is one of the things that I do, sorry, probably appreciate them uh, doing. Pushing for things like like this, I can I can see their point on that. I mean, me saying that about I the greens do. is no. Sorry, you continue. No, no. Uh, <laughs> well, what I was going to say is, I mean, uh, you know, I was sort of. You probably heard it in my voice. Uh, What I mean is, what I mean is, it's again. This is one of those situations. Like I said, I think it was uh, two weeks ago. It's very easy for the Greens to be the ones that say this sort of stuff because they don't have a commitment to deliver this, right? So it's very easy for the Greens to use this as a political win. And at the same time, that's more where I was sniggering from. But I agree. I think this is something Ah, that I do think is is worth is worth the value you know at the end of the day six and a half billion dollars to cover every australian for dental care yes it's expensive yes that's a lot of money but like not doing anything is worse we've got a lot of australians that are suffering um you know we're already paying for it but it's it's taking a long time it's it's um I think there's a I think there's a lot more money that is is much much harder to calculate. You know, when we're talking about access to, um, for example, right? A good example is with certain, as you said before, with certain diseases, you come with 
oftentimes with uh, poor dental outcomes. A good example is like chemotherapy or diabetes or, or certain types of heart disease. Um, basically, your teeth can be severely impacted by that. Those people need ongoing dental care, sometimes quite severe dental care with removal of teeth or dentures, replacements, those sorts of things. Those people that are sitting on waiting lists and are waiting for that, there's an economic and a social impact to that as well. That's very hard to calculate how much that costs the Australian economy because we've got people out of work for longer. You're right, people judge them on on their appearance, rightly or wrongly. That's just a human fact in our in our culture. Um, so there's a self-esteem issue, and then that can lead to mental health issues. So, And then those people are seeking mental health treatments and things like that, or maybe they can't go back to work as soon as they want to and so on and so forth. So I think there is a bit of a snowball effect here that, again, is basically impossible to calculate. Um, but I And I think this is one of those things where throwing money at this problem is going to solve a much bigger issue than we can currently calculate. Look, look uh, I can understand that argument. My response would be, I imagine they would throw way too much money too carelessly and in too many wrong places. But we're talking, we're talking bigger things. We're talking principles um, here, and I think it would probably be the right way to to move under the current system. I don't think we're going to see much movement on this. I mean, you know, Whitlam was in uh, was it seventy seventy five? Um, yeah, the CAI removed him. I think it was. Um, so you know, that's all. <laughs> That's a that's a long time that this has been yeah, basically on the back burner. And I was just looking at that uh, article. Was it the spokesman said the Albanese government and is committed to the long term goal of expanding Medicare to dental services, or as you and I call it, bullshit. So yeah, there's not a chance. Not a chance in hell he's going to do anything about it. He might pay some lip service to it, um, but yeah. I think what's more likely is that they may expand uh, who's eligible for dental services and maybe give a bump to funding. But at the moment, they're already focused on the expansion of other Medicare services, so. You know, I think again, their their sort of focuses on the other side of things as opposed to rolling this out. This is the sort of thing you'd use in politics to win an election. You know, yep. This is the sort of thing you can stand up and say, "We promise we're going to do this," and the public can get, excuse me, can get behind it, and you can use this as as your wild card to to you know as a really big promise. The Albanese government, as of right now, doesn't appear to need a really big election promise to win to win their next election that may change Ooh, before before the next election you know Great again point. that may change before the next election i don't know and you know at this point polls it's kind of a waste of time until we get closer so this may be one of those things that we see does come out because there is a Senate report and and so on and so forth. I, I don't think we've heard the last of this, but I think it's getting quietly put in the back pocket. We may pull this out later if we need it, maybe not. Um, but I don't think we're going to see a full expansion of... of um, I, I, I'm sort of where you're at. I think it would be really good to have 
basic dental, you know, basic checkups, some fillings, maybe some basic teeth removal, that kind of stuff, um, expanded to every Australian uh, across the country. Anecdotally, I have a couple of good friends, uh, older older couple uh, that actually went to Bali to get their dental work done. Um, There was this which is very common, um, but yeah, and I sort of was a bit. Yeah, I sort of screwed my face up when he told me because I'd previously had a bad interaction with a tourist. Oh, this is probably 15 years ago. I was in Thailand and there was a guy at the resort who had had some dental work done. I don't know exactly the nature of what went wrong, but he collapsed uh, and was taken to hospital. And and the people that were with him explained that some dental procedure he had had gone terribly wrong. And and that sort of, you know, that's all I can remember. And again, I don't know the nature of exactly what happened, but um, so I've sort of had this bad opinion about overseas dental work and that sort of stuff. But I was assured by my friend that had it done that this was basically a world-class facility. It was very clean, very proper, um, had all of the equipment that was required. And, and for, you know, it still did cost them several thousand dollars for the for the things that they had done. I can't remember exactly, but it, it was, I think it was, you know, a couple of... Um, a couple of crowns and, and that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, n- not, you know, reasonably trivial dental stuff, but nothing, you know, here would cost them twice as much if three times as much as what they had whilst they were over there and they got it done uh and they got a holiday out of it so for them it was a win-win uh the quality this was over 12 months ago now so the quality was obviously fine because it's still fine they haven't had any issues or or any um follow-up uh problems or anything like that so i don't know i think we're seeing a lot of that you know that that's not uncommon to hear about people going to bali or, or oh, it, elsewhere it's in funny you said that it, it just, uh, bloke that I know from uh, from pickleball, exactly that same thing. He has he's been a, a couple of times had uh, crowns done. He's had um, I think it was posts put in. He has had a number of them went over. I think he said there was a group of about eight of them went over for a a few. weeks uh and, and, you know i saw my initial thing was like god why would you go to bloody indonesia for your your debt your dental ignorant me and he said they're like high level of, of of skills um it's really super modern facility he's done it a couple of times he has friends who've done it the dental work checks out and he said it just not only does it pay for the holiday um it saves some money even after that compared to what it would cost over here in Australia. It's interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, look, you know, and I don't want to say, I think the government knows this and I think that's also part of the reason that they're not super quick to to jump on this because there are alternatives for and you know these people that are doing this they're reasonably well off they're not um 
you know, my mate that I know and, and probably your friend as well. Um, they're not exactly, you know, on the bones of um, the bones of their ass, as they say, and not exactly super poor, but also not, you know, flashy, exactly super rich either. If they had to get it done here in Australia, they probably could. Um, but financially, it was obviously a lot better for them and emotionally because uh, they got a holiday out of it. So, um, to go and spend their money overseas, which is a shame because obviously we want that money to be spent in Australia as opposed to to taking it offshore. But, you know, for them, it just completely makes sense to do so. And I can't blame them at all. No, I, I can't either. And, you know, it does, it does leave a question hanging in there if that can be done in Indonesia by, you know, top-level professionals for that amount of money. What's the barrier here? Exactly, exactly. Now, speaking of going to other places, I think it's time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. Now, this week's Two Ticks Town Talk is a little bit different from normal. Uh, We're going to be heading south to Tasmania, specifically to King Island, which is a large island just northwest of the main island of Tasmania. Uh... And I'm going to tell you a little tale. So the largest town on this island is called Curry. It's got a population of 768. And this is our town for this Two Ticks Town Talk. But this isn't so much about the town of Curry. This is more about the founding of the town of Curry, because this is quite an interesting story. So the town is named after the town's founder, Archibald Curry, who is a Melbourne ship owner. But we'll come back to him a little bit later on because the story of the town of Curry really is actually the story of a ship, a ship called the Netherby. The Netherby was a ship owned by the British Black Ball Line who was under charter by the state of Queensland to carry immigrants from the United Kingdom to the new colony of Queensland in 1866. So just a few years ago. Sailing from the East India docks in London, the Netherby sailed to Portsmouth to take on its final group of immigrants before sailing, setting sail for Queensland. Now, the ship's master for the voyage, and I swear to you this is true, his name was Captain Owen Owens. <laughs> <laughs> and she had 452 immigrants on board and 52 crew. Now, the ship was supposed to go around the southern tip of Tasmania, but Captain Owens decided he was going to pass through the Bass Strait instead. Approaching the Bass Strait, overcast conditions prevented the master from taking observation of the sun for five days. And at about 7.30pm on the 14th of July, 1866, a lookout suddenly called breakers ahead. Within three minutes, the vessel had sailed straight into the rocks some 35 miles south of Cape Wickham, which is the very northern tip of King Island. Thankfully, the Netherby ended up very close inshore and it was canted over shorewood, meaning that the 
if you can imagine a ship's tilted over on its keel, the side with the deck was facing the shore and the other side that was being hit by the ocean was, was the keel. Right. So because of that, the sea was sheltered. Uh, the people on the deck were sheltered from, from the rough seas, though the sea that night was actually quite calm, which was good. <laughs> one of the crew, oh, so, so one of the crew. Wasn't, fr- <laughs> wasn't frightening at all. Everyone's fine. It, don't oh. worry about it. So one of the crew managed to swim ashore with a line. Uh, which then was tied off to a much heavier line that he then pulled in uh, to shore. And then one of the boats was launched and was hauled to and fro, ferrying all people on board to the beach safely. Provisions and gear were recovered from the ship and the tents were made from the sails hung from framework cut from small trees in the local area. This is crazy. Two days after the wreck, a passenger on board gave birth to twins, bringing the total number of castaways to 506. So every single person on board was safe ashore at this time. It should be said, King Island at this time was it's basically uninhabited. So Chief Officer John Parry and eight of the crew set northwards to find habitation. Five days later, five days later, they met up with Superintendent Hickmott of the Cape Wickham Lighthouse, which is at the very northern tip of the island. After they'd recovered from their ordeal, Parry and four of the strongest men set off to Melbourne in the lighthouse's boat on the 21st of uh july remembering they shipwrecked on the 14th so on the 21st of july parry and his companions landed near anglesey on the victorian coast now this is pretty significantly far south of Phillip Heads, which is where they were trying to go through. They intended to make landfall in Port Phillip Heads, uh, but uh, because of the currents, they made landfall significantly south of that. And they wandered so through they, the bush. Were they, were, do you know if they were rowing or it was a sailboat or what the story was? There? I believe it was a small, it was a long boat, so it was a small sailboat. Okay. Um, they wandered through the bush before they found a shepherd who immediately ran off, fearing that they were bush rangers. <laughs> um, they, did, they did manage to catch up to him. Uh, they told them who they were, and he led them to Road Knight Station. Here he was loaned a horse, and he rode 35 miles to Geelong. From there, the news of the wreck was finally passed on to Melbourne. The Victorian government did act quickly and they immediately provisioned the steamers Victoria and Pharos and they sent them off to recover the castaways on King Island. On the 24th of June, Victoria returned to Melbourne uh, with 200 passengers while the Pharos shortly rem- uh, arrived afterwards with 50 passengers and 30 of the crew and the two steamers returned again to King Island and they landed the remainder of the castaways on the 28th of July. 
Most of the survivors elected to stay in Victoria, with some of them continuing on to Brisbane on board the ship, the city of Melbourne, arriving on August 6th. 1866. Now, I just want to interject here. I have a real problem with 1860s Victoria. Uh, people in Melbourne calling their ships the Victoria and the city of Melbourne. Couldn't you come up with any better names? Come on. It's very confusing. Um, so, I hear you now, my dear listener, saying, hey, DK, that's a really cool story, but what the hell does this have to do with the town of Curry and its namesake, Archibald? Well, the shipwreck and its cargo were sold in Melbourne at auction to a syndicate including Myers, Curry and Boyd and J. Donaldson's and Co. They bought the ship for £150 and the cargo for 170 these amounts approximately today are about $26,000 for the ship and $30,000 for the cargo. So they're, they're purchasing the shell, salvage rights. The main cargo uh, to be recovered was railway locomotives and rolling stock amongst much lots of other items, including on the uh, like on so, the ship. So, so this was, so, so this was the, a reasonably the large ship. Sorry, just... Make sure I haven't just vagued out here and missed something. The ship yep. that came over that was carrying the peop- the 500 people who wanted to immigrate to Australia was also car- carrying locomotives and railways- yes. railway stock. Yes. Yep. Wow. <laughs> it must have been. <laughs> yeah. That's huge. It's a, it's a pretty big ship. I'm just trying to look up... Uh... I don't have the exact. Um, so is this a is this a ship or is it a steamer or it's a like you said you said yeah, no, no, it's, it's a, the, it um, was, they sent out a yeah from um, wherever Melbourne from Melbourne yeah so this was a sail ship um, it wow. was it's called it, it, its designation is a full rigged ship so if you can picture in your mind. Uh, a reasonably large ship. So this this ship was uh, fifty three meters long, um, and ten meters at the beam. So at a, at its widest point, it was ten meters wide, fifty three meters long. So it's a pretty big, pretty big ship. And when we call when we say a full rigged ship, it's got three main masts, and they all have square sails like three stories tall. So in your mind, you're probably thinking of maybe wow. like something from like Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. It's sort of bigger than a lot of those ships. It's a very big ship. Um, I'm just co- it, coincidentally enough, the um, uh, fence we've got around our place is, is 52 meters square. So when you said that, oh, 53, yeah, look, that's pretty big. But if you had said that, I would have thought, oh, that's you know, sort of a bit, uh, a little bit sort of cramped for five hundred people. Then you say, oh, and by the way, there's a locomotive in there and a couple of other railway rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I- I'm not sure that they were. I- I look, I don't have expi- uh, explicit information on on the on the locomotives, but I believe they were probably smaller locomotives used for like cane or, or logging or something like that because. A full-size no, locomotive uh, just surely uh, probably couldn't fit, I would imagine, um, because I 
its registered tonnage was 960 metric tons. So I can't imagine it could carry a full... Yeah. Um, now, anyway, that's the story. The team Sorry, that... Was a, that you, just, you just got me visualising this, uh, this <laughs> the, ship with its three-storey mast. And, yeah. It's a big ship. So, it's a big okay, ship. carry on. So uh, the team that uh, were assembled to recover the ship and its cargo included the aforementioned Archibald Curry and they arrived to set up the salvage operation in the nearby natural harbour this would become the town of Curry unfortunately though on the 21st of January 1867 three of the salvage team were drowned when their boat sank after a piece of railway iron fell through its bottom while it was hoisted from the wreck so I don't have much detail from that, but what I can piece together is it sounds like they were on a reasonably smaller, sort of like a rowboat-sized boat, and a piece of railway island has fallen from a height, basically through it, and the boat sank and, and unfortunately killed them. So, um, It seems that the recovery went on for quite a, quite a few years, or at least Archibald Curry stayed in the area because there were a number of other shipwrecks on that coast, um, and the British Admiralty also used the natural harbour, which is now called Curry Harbour, uh, to salvage some of their own vessels. Um, and in 1879, Archibald Curry and a few others petitioned to get a lighthouse built outside of the small town. Um, it was 312 pieces and was prefabricated in England by Chance Brothers of wrought iron and cast iron base. The cylinder in the centre has 90 spiralled steps to its top and it was first lit in 1880. Oh. The King Island's rugged coastline has claimed at least 60 vessels and more than 800 lives in the past 180 years. So I think Archibald Curry, with his recovery operation, salvage operation, was around for quite a while, which is why he has basically established the town um, and continued to be a big part of it. So Curry is also the most western town in Tasmania, just by point of fact that it's the most western town on the most western island of the state of Tasmania. And today it is a significant centre for the fishing industry, especially crayfish. Um, whilst I was... This is completely off topic, well, slightly off topic, but whilst I was actually researching this, I discovered that Tasmania and Victoria have a land border. Did you know this? Oh. You, you know, I... I do know this. I can't tell you the island, but I seem to recall in when I was looking up a Two Ticks Town Talk that there's some little island that no one particularly cares about that's not inhabited that technically, with the way that maritime borders and things are drawn, half of it's Victoria and half of it's um, Tasmania. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, almost exactly perfectly right. So it turns out there is an island called, well, it's not even declared an island, it's an islet. Uh, uh, it's called Boundary Islet, or also known as North East Islet. Um, it's about five acres, so it's not that small. Um, 
but it's part of the Hogan Island group in the Bass Strait. It sits at the latitude of 39 degrees south, uh, 12 minutes. And no one actually knew about this when the border was drawn. And it's a maritime border at that latitude. And because no one specifically knew of it at the time, um, they just thought, oh, yeah, all the islands end here. Draw the line on the map. Everything south of that's Tasmania. Everything north of that is is Victoria. And just by complete chance, the islet perfectly straddles the maritime border, and it's almost perfectly cut in half. Um, the Tasmanian slide is slightly larger, but it's almost perfectly down the middle. Um, and as a result, technically, Victoria and Tasmania actually share a land border, um, though. No one lives there. It it it's it's very much a big rock. So I don't. I think I don't think many people have been there and, and walked across the border or anything like oh. that. But I did sort of encounter this while I was researching this, and I thought it was a bit a little bit cool. So if you if you live in the town of Curry or if you've been to the town of Curry, the 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 area around it today, there's like there's not a lot in this town. It is very small. Um but it services it is it's still the largest uh town on King Island. Um and it mainly services there's a lot of um uh agriculture like grazing and, and farms and that kind of stuff on King Island today. A lot of fishing and, and stuff like that. So um there's not a huge amount other than the history. Uh, and like I said, the town was basically founded by uh, a shipwreck. And there is uh, an area now where the Netherby uh, uh, basically came ashore and wrecked called called Netherly Rocks. And there's a Netherby uh, Point as well. So there's a bit of history there as well. Um, so if you're in the, in the area, now you know how this town came to be and what there is to do and see, because it sounds like there's not a lot else out there, but that's the little town of Curry. Wow, that's interesting. I'm surprised at how many shipwrecks. Well, there was two things I was particularly surprised at there. Uh, oh, it was an interesting story of how they had to bloody get in the, the boat and take off and and, and uh, head for the uh, head for Victoria. Victoria, but I was surprised that there was already an uh, an already a uh, lighthouse there, and I was surprised at just how many bloody ships. Yeah, so it's not it's it's just you know just huge island, but I mean it's big. No, it's 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 noticeable on the map. It's sort of thing. Poor bucket. Chances of like Bass Strait and hitting a bloody island. Yeah, it's about sixty. It's quite. It's sort of shaped like a jelly bean, I guess. Um, and it's about sixty-three kilometers tip to tip. So um, it's not. It's not huge as far as islands go. Uh, you know, on the grand scheme of things, but it's about twenty twenty-two k's at its widest point from from uh, you know middle to middle. Sort of shaped like a tic tac, I guess. Um, but the reason that they uh, and I, I did cut this out for time, but I guess I'll tell you now. The reason in 1879 that Archibald Curry petitioned to build the lighthouse was because right outside of the Natural Harbour, um, there is a number of rocks on the southern edge of, or as you're coming into the harbour, and a ship 
shipwrecked right there, right in front of the harbour. And so they were like, we need a bloody lighthouse here because in inclement weather or, or in fog or anything like that, um, you just can't see it. So today, uh, so, so in the story, the Wickham Lighthouse is at the very top, the northern tip of King Island, but of course, where the Netherbeak ran uh, uh, ground is is more sort of towards the southern end of um, which is where the town of Curry is now um, of King Island. But today, there's the Curry Lighthouse, the Wickham Lighthouse. There's also one at the very southern tip called Stokes Point, and there's one on the the western side as well. Um, so all four sides have lighthouses. The Curry Lighthouse actually ceased operation in the 80s, so it ran for about 100 years. And then in the 90s, there was a petition to get it up and running again because, you know, modern modern um, GPS and all that, we didn't really – the use of lighthouses have sort of become somewhat redundant. Um, but they did, for historical reasons, um, it is the same lighthouse that was built back in the, the 1800s. Um, they did get it up and running again in in the nineties, and it's been running ever since. So, as far as I know, it still operates to this day. So, which is a little bit cool. Wow, that's very cool. That's uh, that's interesting. Into claimed. Um, yeah, look, that's. That's the one thing that I like about this two ticks town talk. You get to uh, hear these these snippets you wouldn't have heard otherwise. Yeah, like I said, a little bit different from last time, but a bit of a fun story uh, about a little town. And honestly, how did I find this? I was looking at the map, and I've never ever gone and looked at anything on King Island before. And for some reason. I can't even tell you why. It just tickled my fancy, and I just went from there, um, and I just got lost in this rabbit hole. So <laughs> that's the beauty—the beauty of the two takes town talk, though. It is King Island uh, the bucket list for? Well, probably not bucket list. I mean, that has a whole lot. King Island is somewhere <laughs> that I'd like, to, I'd like to go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Just, I mean, it's, it's I might a, now go to, to see some of the shipwrecks. Yeah, well, yep, and it's always interesting having a little bit of a, a, a taster, and it's something that you don't sort of really sit down and people say, oh, where'd you go for a, a bit of a holiday? I went to King Island. I mean, I, I well, actually, I don't know anybody who's been to King Island, but obviously, you know, I've, I've eaten their cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, because, again, big dairy area and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think it would be fun. And then this is the beauty of these two tech towns talks. We always find places that suddenly, you know, everywhere is significantly, there's something interesting about every place in the entire world. And it's just, you just yeah. got to sort of scratch the surface to find, find the details. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So let's move on and let's look at the most and least ethical Australian jobs. Uh-huh. So how this works is the Governance Institute of Australia does an ethics index of ranked occupations from most to least ethical, along with sectors and organisations. Now, 
I'm I know for a fact, Adi, that you have read this report and let's not spoil the top least ethical spot just yet. Nope. But what I want to know is did any of these take you by surprise? Surprise me on the, the on the chairs. I would agree with you there. That one definitely. So, listeners, bear with me a second because we will. I will read you the list of top ten in just a minute. Um, that probably was my most surprising, other than the number one spot. Once I started thinking about it, it did make sense. Uh, the number one spot and number two, um, and most of the others were pretty obvious. But chairs of companies kind of surprised me because. I feel like there's a little bit of overlap with some of the other ones, like directors of Australian companies, um, managing directors and senior executives. There's a bit of an overlap there. And chairs of companies don't necessarily, like you said, it, it can be a bit more of a benign thing. Perhaps it's just about the public, because, of course, all of this is about public perception. It is about people's opinions. True. And we, yeah. we will get into that a little bit in a minute um, about the details of how this, this information is compiled. So I think that's probably influencing that more than anything else. But um, basically, how this works is the Governance Institute's annual ethics index tracks changes in public attitude to the importance of ethics, generally speaking, but also changes in public perception around the extent to which certain groups can be trusted to behave ethically. Um, the findings are based on a survey of a thousand people conducted during this this year. It was conducted in June and July, um, so it doesn't have the biggest sample size, but they are very particular about spreading out the um, the demographics across Australia, across uh, age groups. They do split the genders 50-50. Uh, the, the, the whole methodology is in their report, and it is quite comprehensive, even though it is only a 1,000 people. Um, but I feel like it's enough to really get the pulse of the nation, to kind of get a, a snapshot of the zeitgeist, if you like. So, yeah, so. yeah look, a thousand's a, a, thousand's a reasonable... Uh, amount, you know, I've had it explained to me by people who understand statistics a bit more and just how you can get a reasonable extrapolation from that. So your comment that it probably reflects the zeitgeist is is accurate. Yeah, and again, they do break down inside the report, which I've read at several of them now, um, they do break down. The, the data is anonymous, but it, it does have... A lot of you know uh, what gender these people were, what states they came from, and and how it all breaks it down, um, age ranges, uh, socioeconomic ranges, and all that kind of stuff. And it is spread quite fairly, so I do feel like it is quite representative. Um, so to stop uh, to stop you waiting, my dear listeners, I will read you the top ten least ethical occupations as voted. By a thousand everyday Australians, number one, the worst. So they will rank this from from most unethical to least unethical in the top ten. So number one, most least most least unethical occupation <laughs> is real estate agents. <clears throat> this one surprised me. I didn't think it would be number one, but. Here we are. Number one, real estate agents. I do feel like this more is a reflection of the current housing crisis. Um, yes. I think it's, like I said, the the zeitgeist right now is very, excuse me, very much focused on um, 
the housing crisis and rents increasing and you know all of that sort of stuff and as a result real estate agents are people that are uh not solely responsible but a large part of that so number two directors of foreign companies operating in australia i feel that one's a little bit there's a bit of a xenophobia there um that one kind that kind of makes sense in my mind Number three, federal politicians. There's no surprise there. No surprise there. Uh, Number four is state politicians. Again, no surprise there. Uh, Number five, senior executives. Um, This one isn't too surprising, I feel. Uh, Number six is local politicians. Uh, Number seven, this was the surprising one, as we both said, chairs of companies. this one, you know, I, as I said, I feel like this overlaps a little bit with number five with the senior executives. Um, number number eight is directors of Australian companies. Um, again, I just feel like there's this overlap with, with that, uh, the last one with the chairs. Number nine is CEOs and managing directors. Again, I feel like this is almost redundant, eight or nine, if I'm honest. I feel like this sort of... They're not the same thing, but they're close enough that you may as well lump them together. Yeah, and that's why I was a bit surprised with chairs. I would have thought if you're going to throw all of them on the the list, I would have put chairs below them, but maybe that's a case of understanding or not understanding the the different roles. Exactly. No, I I completely agree. Uh, And number 10 was lawyers, which isn't really too surprising. I'm actually surprised it's number 10. I would have thought maybe it was a little bit higher up, but there we go. Um, so out of interest, I actually went back to 2021's ethics index to see how they compare with things and how things have changed over the last couple of years. I didn't want to do last year because I felt like they were probably going to be quite similar and they were. Um, so jumping a couple of years is probably a good idea. Um, the results were interesting, uh, remembering that we were in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic at the time, and we'd recently had the 2020 bushfires. And of course, all that stuff is very much in everyone's minds. So, with a little bit of context, it's not surprising that the list is as follows. Number one, most least ethical is federal politicians. Number two is real estate agents. Number wow, three is... Even still. Even still. still people number, people okay. really don't like real estate agents. Uh, number three is directors of foreign companies operating in Australia. Number four is local politicians. Number five is state politicians. Number six is lawyers. Number seven, same as this year, is chairs of companies. Number eight is chief is CEOs and managing directors. Number nine is senior executives. And number 10 is mortgage brokers. Ooh. So I'm actually kind of surprised that mortgage brokers didn't make the list this year, considering we've had such... Um, such changes in, in interest rates, and I'm sure lots of people are speaking to lenders about how to get the most out of um, the most out of their mm. money at the moment and mm. things like that. So, huh. and now we've spoken about the least ethical. What about the most ethical? Uh, number one, fire services. So firefighters, uh, the most ethical people in our society, we believe, are the firemen. I kind of agree with that. I think that's you know. Uh, yeah, number two, I, I, I can see that. Number two is ambulance services. Um, this makes sense. They come and save you, hopefully. Um, I guess same as fire services. Um, yeah, that's, number that's three, we had the uh, 
when I had the the issue. Oh yeah, no, actually, I'm not. I'm not going to say that I got in trouble with an Ambo. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm cutting myself off. Then continue on. Uh, number three actually kind of surprised me. It's pharmacists. People hold their pharmacists in very high regard, yep. which I, I don't think they don't deserve it. I'm surprised because I just I didn't think they would be that high up. No. Um, I hold my pharmacist in very high regard, but um, I'm surprised it's number three. Uh, number four is nurses. Number five is GPs, your doctor, your general practitioner. Number six is childcare slash preschool carers. Um, number seven is primary school teachers. Number eight, veterinarians. Yeah. Everybody loves yeah. the vet. Uh, number nine is dentists. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like <laughs> at least my dentist, he's constantly trying to get me to spend money there. So um, <laughs> I do trust him. I think he's, you know, he's he's got the right ideas, but part of me is also like, you just want me to spend money. Uh, number 10 is secondary school teachers. So, again, I went back to 2021, see how things had changed over the last couple of years and to see if anything had changed at all. And the results were largely the same. So, number one was still fire services, firefighters. Number two was nurses. Number three was ambulance services. And number four was pharmacists. So, a little bit of a shake up there in the in the top top four um, number five was general practitioners, exactly the same as this year. Uh, number six was veterinarians. So this year they've dropped down a couple. Uh, number seven was childcare and preschool teachers. So again, um, they've actually gone up one from, from a couple of years ago. Uh, number eight was primary school teachers. Uh, number nine was dentists, same as this year. So we're consistent there. But number 10 was actually auxiliary service providers, which I actually had to look up what they specifically meant by this. Um, and it's what we would call, at least here in Queensland, it's what we call allied health. So these are people that are like um, radiologists, physios, those sort of... Uh, yeah. Okay. Ancillary service, medical service providers, I guess you'd call them. So, um, Flip, which I think is true. Phlebotomists and that. Yeah. <laughs> and all the rest. Dietitians. They're, they're the ones that, they're, that's the name for people who take blood, isn't it? Phlebotomists or phlebotologists? Phlebotomist, no, phlebotomists. I'm not 100% sure, but I do believe it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I'm, I going to, I'm going to dob my I'm going to dob myself <laughs> in on what I said to the Ambo mate because when when you hear these things you think God what the hell was it why didn't he say it we had a whole issue down here in Victoria with the uh, Ambos and the Andrews government and there was a whole lot of uh, they they got those liquid chalk things and all the ambulances the ambulances down here were covered in uh, their demands for the health services. Um, you know, what they sort of wanted to have happen. And I was in a group of people and the mate there was an Amber. I said, and I sort of was straight facing him and said, oh, I saw in one of the ambulances some of your list of demands and everything that was um, on the side of the ambulance. And he was sort of nodding away. I said, I was really surprised. He said, oh, yeah. I said, I didn't know you guys could write. <laughs> and- <laughs> Yeah, he wasn't super impressed. And look, I was a little no. bit, 
<laughs> and, uh, yeah. So for people who people who wanted to know what I stuffed up on, that was it. <laughs> um, what I found interesting is they also ranked the uh, most ethical and least ethical organizations. Oh. Now, I know you probably haven't seen this, so I I'm curious. haven't at all. So I'm really curious. So I've downloaded the reports for the last couple of years. Um, they are really interesting. They go into a lot of detail. There's lots of graphs and very pretty colors and all sorts. Um, but I'm really curious. What do you think? So this is just 2020, 2023. So this is this year. Who do you think is the number one most least ethical organization? Now, this is a very organization is obviously a very broad term. It is. Yeah, I wanted a decent, definition. Yeah. So. They don't. They don't really define an organization necessarily. And once I start telling, I don't want to reveal too much. But once I start telling you, then you'll be like, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." Oh, well, but let this me, is so a let time. Me, let, let me jump in with what my guess was going to be to see whether that fits. In. Is the banking industry an organization, or is something like the Commonwealth Bank an organization? Or have I got my definitions incorrect? No, so they in this they don't define those as organizations. They yeah. do define those as member associations. So like the Australian Banking Association is it's in a different category, which we're actually not gonna do, but they are the the most least ethical uh member association. Um so yeah, you're right. But in terms of organization, this I'll give you a tip. This is a group of, this is a type of business that exists in Australia. It, you know, opens nine to five, bricks and mortar. Yep, yep. I think I'm going to get, if if we're talking uh, Australia and um, uh, people out making life better for future generations, is it the fossil fuel industry? No, and I'm surprised it's not. When wow. I talked to my wife about this, I gave her this question, and she said, oh, it's got to be the mines or, or the gas platform or, or something like that. And I yeah. said, do you know what? It's not, and I'm really, really surprised oh, that it's not. Can I, can I have one last guess? Go on. Give it it's another the, go. Um, it's the uh, like uh, electricity providers. Again, you'd think so, oh. but no. Oh. Number one, number one, I'll put you out of your misery. Number yeah. one most most least, least ethical organization is payday lenders. So your oh. cash converters, your pawn shops, those sorts of guys. Right. I sort of looked at it and went, yeah, yeah. But also I feel like there's people more deserving of the top spot. Um, number two is TikTok. They do have an Australian presence, as we know. Wow. They have offices in Australia. Um, people don't like TikTok. Well, people do like TikTok, but they don't like TikTok. So they don't trust it, which is fair. We've spoken about TikTok on the podcast before. Uh, our regular listeners will know. Not a fan. Don't trust them. Uh, number three is your least favorite, Facebook. Uh, don't trust oh, them. Right. Okay. So number three. Number four is Twitter. I'm not going to call it X. I mean, I just did, but... It's still Twitter in my mind. Uh, number five is Instagram. 
which I feel like Insta- like Instagram and Facebook, they're the same company. Um, but anyway, number six is foreign companies operating in Australia, which is the most vague thing. And I wish they wouldn't even include it because it includes obviously all of those other than paid lenders. Hmm. Um, number seven kind of surprised me. They just call it journalists. But what I think they mean is media organizations you know as as a group because journalist is an occupation obviously um oh that's a fake that's a fake comment yeah and again i'm surprised that's not higher up i think there's a lot of uh mass media companies that i would call some of the least ethical um Number eight was life insurance companies, which actually kind of surprised me. I do work in financial services, so maybe I'm sort of tainted by my own interactions with a lot of uh, a lot of life insurance companies. And I generally mm-hmm. don't, as as someone with insider knowledge, I actually don't think they're very heavily regulated. Um, I think there definitely can be some some wishy-washy stuff that goes on in this industry, don't get me wrong, um, but I feel like it more happens at the sales side of things, you mm. know, over-promising, under-delivering, that sort of stuff, um, which definitely is is an ethical issue. Um, but So I was a little bit surprised that life insurance companies were so high up, so that's number eight. Number nine is magazines. Again, I think they're talking about, you know, print media. Um, and number 10 surprised me that it was so far down is federal parliament wow yeah if i had that on a list you know where mine would be <laughs> it would be right at the top um so that did surprise me i don't have the 2021 organizations because they did 2021 when they did it they sort of broke it down a little bit differently and in, into um this year, they kind of combined a few of the categories into this, the ranked organizations. In the past, in 2021 at least, they did um, media sector ethics, uh, for an example, and TikTok was the most least ethical, and the most ethical was the ABC. Uh, podcasts was actually number four, most ethical. So that kind of surprised me as well. So, um but basically, people don't like social media and they do trust the traditional sources a lot more, which makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, the most ethical of this year uh, was number one organization was pathology services specialists. So this is, huh. you know, Sullivan, Nicolades, as you said, people that take blood. People that, you know, you go and you give them your, your blood, they, they take your blood for, for yep. the scans and things, and, and they obviously they do other things than blood, other bodily fluids, but that's that's a big one. Um, number two was primary schools, which makes sense. Most people trust their primary school. Uh, number three was medical charities. Specifically, they use the example of the Cancer Council. So people think they're quite ethical. They trust them. Honestly, I don't really have much of an opinion. I can't say. No. Do I trust them? But then I... Uh, number four was social yeah, welfare charities. Me. Honestly, I don't really know too much about the Cancer Council in the nuts and bolts, what they do every day. What I do know is when I go to buy sunscreen, I make sure it's got the little Cancer Council oh, thing on it. Yep. Don't know if that makes any difference, but makes me feel better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number four was social welfare charities. And again, they specifically uh, point out the Smith Family Charity. Yeah. 
Again, I don't know the nuts and bolts of what the Smith family. I, I, I've heard of them. I know what they do. Um, but again, I don't know too much um, about their day-to-day runnings of things and programs and that sort of stuff. Hmm. N- number five was TAFEs. So for our yeah, international okay. learning, for our international listeners, a TAFE is basically a technical college. Um, it's the sort of place you can go to to get uh, more like short courses. So they do they do a lot of, uh, you know, if you want to be a bartender, you'll go and do a TAFE course, for example. Um, if you want to do carpentry, they do a number of things. But instead of being like a full university, it's more like, like I said, like a technical, technical college type thing. Uh, number six was public hospitals. People trust their hospitals. That's good. Um, number seven was public secondary schools. Uh, number eight, childcare and preschool centers, which is interesting because apparently we trust the people that work in childcare centers. We rank them number six, but the centers themselves, we rank at number eight. So ah. we, we tr- trust the organization less than we trust the people. Um, <laughs> uh, number nine is the CSIRO. Uh, which is uh, Australia's um, national research. What does it stand for? The um... I was just about to put you on the spot and say, of course, yeah, of course we I'm... all know all know what that stands for. <laughs> I'm, I'm frantically looking it up. It's the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. I knew the S was scientific, oh, and I knew the last part was <laughs> research organization, but I couldn't remember if it, what. Now that I read it, of course it means Commonwealth, but I didn't think industrial was in there. So the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. It's a government-funded research think tank type organization, I guess. Um, They do a lot of research on everything, really. Um, They do give us some good data. So that's, yeah. Number 10 kind of surprised me. It was the consumer advice organization called Choice. That surprised me. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Okay, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, I do have a uh, fair bit of faith in in choice, but yeah, I'm a little bit surprised too. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah, I don't know. I just I was surprised considering, for example, um, like I said in 2021, they didn't break it down quite the same way. But for public services and government uh, government sector ethics, we do have a few there. Do you want to guess what, in 2021, people ranked the highest for government sector um, organisations? Rank the highest. Hmm. There's God, eight in this. Looking, it's like looking into a, a, a septic tank and trying <laughs> to see well, the least offensive thing floating on top. I'll give you a big tip. It was just in our most ethical organizations from this year. Oh, God. Um, God, I won't even go back to that. I'll try and remember the most ethical. Was that the um, short-term memory loss? Was that the... um... (laughs) Is the CSIRO. Oh, Um, God, there we go. <laughs> the CSIRO. Thank you for putting me out of my misery there. I thought I thought it was. I was trying to remember what the uh, the the there was a a, a welfare or something um, assistance thing in there. But okay, CSIRO. Okay, that makes sense. 
Yeah, the CSIRO. So this is government organisations. Number one, CSIRO. Number two, Defence Force. Australians oh, trust the Defence yep. Force, which is good. Uh, number three was Border Force. So uh, for our international listeners that don't know, the Defence oh, Force, uh, you know, protects uh, Australia from foreign threats. Border Force is our kind of our version of the Coast Guard, I, I, th- I would guess, uh, for our American yeah. listeners. Um and they do airport security and all that kind of stuff. Um, number four is the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. I'm surprised oh, Border Force is higher than the ACCC. I do. Oh, why? I trust the ACCC to do the right thing in most regards. Um, generally speaking, they're pretty, pretty, pretty on the right. Um, interestingly. The next one is the financial sector regulators. So this is primarily this is ASIC, Australian oh, yeah. Securities and Exchange Commission, um, and APRA, which does super funds. So hmm. number. So now we're getting to the bottom. So this is this is becoming the the more unethical now. Uh, local councils and shires, which is no surprise. Uh, <laughs> in second to last, we have state parliament. Again, no surprise. And number one, most worst, most worst, <laughs> least, least ethical is the federal parliament. No one likes the politicians yeah. in Canberra. Yep. So. Yeah. Well, well, well picked people. Yeah, well-picked <laughs> people indeed. Now, we've gone through a lot of history today, but there's more to come. Please tell us what's happened this week in Australian history. Okay, this week in Australian history, we're covering the 14th to the 20th of September. September 14th in 1914, the Australian submarine AE-1 is lost with all 35 men while patrolling New Britain. Uh, it's always I, the idea of dying in a sub. One of no, those, thanks. Uh, no, exactly. Yeah. I like the sun too much to be a submariner. I have a lot of respect for submariners. I had a lot of friends that were submariners, yep. Uh, yep. but no thanks. Not going to do it. Though we did only just find the AE-1 um, just off the coast. So New Britain is just, it's part of, part of Papua New Guinea, basically. Um, and we only just found the wreck, I think, a few years yeah. ago. So, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, 1950s British nuclear tests, nuclear tests at Maralinga enter their second phase as Operation Antler begins. These are the last British tests on mainland Australia. September 15th, 1793, Captain William leads a party of Scotsmen in the first attempt to cross the Blue Mountains. He is unsuccessful. Uh... 1870, work begins on the Australian Overland Telegraph linking Port Augusta to Dark. And we uh, touched on that last week in the Two Ticks Town talks when we were referencing Udnadatta and the Udnadatta Trail. That's uh, right, eight, yes. Yeah, yeah. 1879, Joseph Lyons, 10th Prime Minister of Australia, is born in Stanley, Tasmania. And uh, 2000, the... In two thousand, year two thousand, September fifteenth, the opening ceremony of the Sydney Olympics is on. We also got onto that with uh, Kathy Freeman. 
Uh, yes, so, last week. I was just yeah, thinking. I should have. Yeah, exactly. It should have been this week's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple of things there. September 16th in 1804, the first brewery in Australia begins to produce beer. Now, in 1770, Captain James Cook landed at HMS Dever in Botany Bay uh, for the colonisation, and a former convict, John Boston, was Australia's first official brewer. He made an uh. Uh, drink. Now, he made it out of corn. Sorry, I was going to ask you. I was going to see if you knew what it was, but I thought that's a bit un, bit un. Mind you, you you're a bit of a brewer. What did you think he made it out of? Oh, uh, honestly, I have no idea. There's a lot of ways to make beer, and I cannot think what John Boston in Australia. It, it would have been some imported grain, I would imagine, but just because. If, if you- it's just, Get this earth downed. Oh, I'm not even. Honestly, I won't even guess because, like I said, it'll be some. It'll be some imported grain, but there's so many different types that he could use. I wouldn't even. Well, that's what. Yeah. Yeah. Look, that's why I paused because I thought that's not not fair. So, (laughs) making an Indian corn drink bitter with love apple stalks. Okay. Yeah, okay. That would be, be an interesting brew, I think. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, 1921, the Mount Mind is a Queensland, uh, killed 76 miners, and it was killed by accidental or, or negligent firing of an explosive charge on top of a block of coal apparently in order to split it. And that set off a whole range of um, That's another one I don't think I'd I'd want to do. You know being a miner underground. No thanks. Even today. No thanks. Sorry. No people do it, but no, not me. Nineteen fifty six on September the sixteenth Australian television begins. This surprises me. Television in Australia began experimentally in 1929 in Melbourne, and there was radio stations 3DB, 3UZ, and in Sydney there was 2UE using a thing called the Radio Vision System by um, a couple of blokes, Gilbert Miles and Donald Mac- Donald McDonald. Um, Donald McDonald, sorry. I shouldn't laugh at someone's name, but come on. McOwens. Yeah, yeah, Owen Owen Owens. (laughs) Owen Owens, sorry, that's it. That's what it was. Yeah, I was surprised that uh, they were experimenting as early as 1929 and the book until 19... But yeah. Um, uh, Where are we? 1975, Papua New Guinea gains its independence from Australia. 1988, convictions against Lindy and Michael Chamberlain are uh, quashed. And yeah, people recognise that with the, yeah, the, the the dingo took my baby type of thing uh, from Meryl Streep, how it was you know, national or made internationally recognisable and all the crap they went through. I mean, that was... Uh, I feel so sorry for those people, those so poor people. Bloody oath. Yeah, there was just yeah, there was so many people, and I think for people who are convinced that somebody is guilty, 
guilty. You go back to there and you think how many people knew exactly what was happened, had happened, and all they had done was read a newspaper. So yeah, and that was my mum was one of those people. She 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 up until recently because I think it was only a few years ago. I think they found a dingo nest with the remnants of the clothes to to a hundred percent say no. This definitely was a dingo. It you know it really did happen and everything like that. Even though the conviction was quashed and and all of that, but they actually found evidence that it it truly did happen. Until that happened, my mum. Unfortunately, love her dearly, but she still was like, nah, <laughs> she killed him. It couldn't have been a dingo and all this. So, mm. um, it's, you know, some people, they just draw their opinions. They don't have any expert expertise in the area. Um, <laughs> they just hear something and go, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And this was pre-social media, 1988. But, of course, now we. Oh, it'd be a lot worse. Uh, the truth yeah, seventeen. Yeah. Oh, Wood, September seventeenth. Uh, even the Port Arthur Penal Colony was closed. Uh, Nineteen fourteen. Andrew Fisher became uh, becomes Prime Minister of Australia for a third non-consecutive term. Nineteen fifty. The first Australian forces land in Korea during the uh, Korean War. Australian casualties there numbered more than fifteen hundred. Uh, of whom 339 were killed. More um, wasted lives. September mm. 18th, 1981. It's probably before your time, but Dale Buggins, Australian motorcycle stuntman, died in Melbourne. Um, I don't even know if you remember that name. No, no. Yeah, yeah. 1999, in a shock result, Steve Brax and the Labor Party, former minority gov- government, with three rural independents to oust the ruling Liberal National Coalition government of Jeff Kennett in Victoria. I think shock result is perfectly a situation. I think there's a <laughs> lot of people very surprised. But look, yeah, that was the, the rules. He did it. That's what it, that's what it was. But uh, yeah, it was a surprise. September 19th in 1797. John Shortland is the first European to enter the port of Newcastle. Uh, in 1954, Australian author Miles Franklin dies. There's still uh, the Miles Franklin Award to this day. 2003, Australian singer Slim Dusty dies. There's a lot of beer. Duncan, plus many, many others. Pub with no beer. Yeah, he's, he's sort of immortalised in a lot of Australian. Uh, Folklore and songs. 2003, uh, construction of the Alice Springs to Darwin rail link is completed. Again, we mentioned that on the um, as part of the talk on the Udna Data track, you know, finishing that off. So 2003, really. What, I'm surprised that it was completed yep. in 2003. I thought, I was sure it was a lot older than that, but it hadn't been completed. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, September 20th, 1830, the Port Arthur Penal Settlement was established. We had that it was Uh was 1877, it was closed, but 1830, it was opened. Yeah. Uh, Going back to our our horrors, uh, 1975 on September 20th, 13 miles. 
and is killed in a coal mine explosion at the Kianga mine at uh, Mora, Maura, M-O-U-R-A. How do you pronounce that? I'm not sure. Mora? Okay. Mora, that's what we'll go with, Queensland. And finally, in 1999, Australian troops commanded by Peter Cosgrove arrive in East Timor as part of Interfet peacekeeping operation. And that rounds out our this week in Australian history. And after that, as is traditional, let's crack open a beer and get into the Forex bottle top question. Now, I was, I was tempted based on our previous conversation to pretend that the question was um, how many states does uh, how many states does uh, Victoria Shore share a mainland border with? Just to, uh, <laughs> to but yes, um, I've got two today because if you don't get the first one, which is not really Australian related, but it was on a bottle top, uh, that it may not be very interesting. But we'll see. What is the Roman numeral for six hundred? Uh, oh, fuck. I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> Put me on the spot here. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> this isn't Australian related at no, all. No, it's not. Um, uh, what's the. I'm trying to think of the one for a hundred. I think it's C, isn't it? So. Oh, but is there one for 500? Or is it just. Oh fuck! I, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's what I'm doing here. So yeah, it's it's DC. <laughs> it's DC. Oh, is so D is five hundred then? Obviously, uh, must be. Yeah. Well, hang on. What is the norm numeral for six hundred? Hang is on. C C is C is a hundred. C is a thousand for a century. Is it? Is it a thousand? No, no. See, no. Oh, sorry. You're right. D is five hundred. C is one hundred. That makes six hundred. Yep. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Because you sort of add them together, don't you? Yeah. 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 Exactly. All right. Um, that, that's what I thought might happen because I don't. I wouldn't have got it. I don't think in uh, reverse. <laughs> but this one's a little bit more Australian related. Uh, what is a group of crocodiles called? And there's two answers. So group what is a group of crocodiles. of crocodiles called? Oh, this is going to have one of the – you're going to say it and I'm going to lose my mind because it'll be uh-huh. on the tip of my tongue. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to channel my inner, inner um, uh, croc Dundee, Mick Dundee. What's a group of croc – what would he call – I'm trying to think. I don't think he called a group of croc. Did he call a group of crocodiles in the movies? Um Oh God! He had a crocodile in that movie. There was he is when he came into the pub. He had a fake stuffed one, and then That's there was right, when yeah. they were in the the bush, and um, a crocodile launched out and grabbed her. There's a water bottle or something. Yes, she bends. I remember that scene yes. very well. She bends over to get some water in the billabong, and the croc comes out. Um, yeah. oh, what's it? it's gonna be? I'm trying to think what a what a crocs do. You know how they name them after like oh, an action. You're heading you're heading in the right direction. <laughs> let's, okay, be- let, me, let, let me give you some hints. Yes, you're 
you're heading in the the right direction. So if you if you saw a, a a croc doing what it does, what would you say it's doing? What does it do? Well, what do crocs do? They swim. They lay on the shore. They bask in the sun. Oh, oh fuck, that's ding, what it ding, is, ding, isn't that's it? one. Yeah. <laughs> a bask, a bask. Well a done. Bask and there's and one other. I don't know. Is it like a snap because they snap their jaws? Or is Ooh, it. That's not, they, not a bad one. I don't it's, know. It's sort of related this? to basking. They float around in the water. Oh, perfect. Well done, DK. <laughs> oh, so it's a good group float, of crocodiles is, it? is called a bask or a float. Oh, you're kidding. How no. bloody lazy are these people that came up with this? What's it doing? <laughs> Nothing. It's it's basking yeah. on shore or it's basking in the water, basically, right? That yeah. makes sense, I guess. E- exactly. I remember the last time I was up in the Northern Territory and they had, because you can get the <clears throat> crocodile meat up there, and um, I tasted it before the second day when I went in um, and they had them on had them on bread. Didn't have much time, so I said, give me a crocodile sandwich and make it snappy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is the perfect way to end this podcast. So on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.com. M-E. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you and tell your mama lover. <laughs> See you, DK. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>